Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Luke 19, starting with verse 11. And the last time we looked at the parable of the wedding feast, I love Jesus' parables. Uh, It might be a little out of the ordinary. Uh, You might say, wow, every Sunday we're covering a parable of Jesus. And what I did was I kind of pulled all the parables out of the Gospels, and these made up a third of the Lord's teachings. And it was really neat because sometimes when he would say things directly, people wouldn't get it. And you've seen this, you know. But then he would tell a story, a fictitious story, to illustrate a spiritual truth. And people started to get it, and it was really neat. But the last time he told the parable of the wedding feast, which was basically uh, the parable of, of really expressing the invitation to salvation that God gives to everyone. And basically to not miss that invitation to salvation. You know, as human beings, we can be so caught up in our lives day in, day out, work and family and, and recreation, all this kind of stuff that, you know, we don't know when today or tomorrow is going to be our last day. And it's so important. God wants all of his children to come to him. You know, he gives out that clarion call to salvation. He loves us. But there's only one way to salvation, and that's through the, the suffering and the, the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. So check that out. If you didn't get it, you can get it free on the website. Uh, today we're going to be in the parable of the minas, or the parable of the pounds, and I'll explain what that is. But this really is a parable of stewardship. What do we do with the things that God gave us? And we'll talk about what the minas are and what they represent. And even more specifically, what are we doing with our lives, right? You know, God is he's called us, he's called us to salvation, and he's also called us to work in his fields, which is lovely, which is an amazing thing. Imagine God tapping you on the shoulder and say, hey, I'd like you to do some things for me. That's really cool. And that's really what he does once we're saved. Now, a little bit of the context here is, you know, it's later in the Lord's ministry. And he's on his way, he's making his way to Jerusalem. And many are following him. It's the Passover season. So I love the context. I've got to take you back 2,000 years in, in a, a land far, far away if you've never traveled there. And to kind of give you a little bit of the filler. So... His followers think, well, he's going to Jerusalem. It's the Passover season. Now, remember, the Jews celebrated Passover where God delivered them via Moses from the Egyptians. So every Passover, there was this messianic fever. The people would be almost worked up into a frenzy. Well, now they see, they find Jesus. He's raising the dead and he's, he's healing the lepers. And they're thinking, surely he's the Messiah, which he was. So they're really excited. But he kind of has to give them a little bit of, of grounding. Jesus wasn't going to do a a Rambo job on the Romans. You know, that's just not how it was going to go down. The suffering servant and dying for their sins had to come first. So there's your context. Now, this parable had four objectives. I call them polyvalent, multivalent parables, and those are fancy words for that they addressed a lot of issues at the same time. These short little stories, amazing. Only God can do something like that. So the four objectives was... To make them understand, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the one who was going to die for the sins of the people, had to come first before the conquering Messiah. And the people were no different than us, right? We read the Bible, we pray, and there's things that we want. We want it at the top of our wish list. 
But God often says, you know what, I have some things that are more needful for you that have to come first. Pretty impressive. So Jesus had to ground them and let them know that the suffering Messiah, the same person as the conquering Messiah, his second coming, one had to come before the other. The second thing that they had to understand was there was going to be a pretty long delay until the conquering Messiah came. We're actually in that time of the delay. We are between the first and second comings in 2017. The third thing that they had to understand was, believe it or not, God has some expectations on us as believers. You know, in any relationship, it's a two-way street. And sometimes if you listen to some of these Sunday morning preachers, you get the impression it's a one-way street. You just ask God for a bunch of stuff and have him come out of the bottle as a genie. He gives you a bunch of stuff. He goes back in until next time you need something. It's not accurate. So we're going to learn three is that God has expectations on believers. And the fourth thing, the fourth objective from this little parable was for people to understand when the Lord does return in our near future, he's going to reward faithful, faithfulness and obedience. Now, I have to differentiate the two words, faithful Believers are believers. We believe in God. We believe in Jesus and what he did. But that's not the faithfulness I'm speaking of, nor him. The faithfulness that he's speaking of when he comes to reward is the reliability and the dependability of believers. But, there's a caveat to that, he's also going to chastise believers who have been disobedient and lazy in a spiritual sense, and we'll check that out. And we're going to look at that in eight parts. So jumping in, verse 11 It says, now as they heard these things, the onlookers, the followers, the crowds, he, Jesus, spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. That's all that context that I gave you. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him and said, We will not have this man to reign or to rule over us. So number one out of eight is the symbolism. And we always do that first because you have to understand the terms. How do I understand this story if I don't know who's who? So the symbolism. Okay? The nobleman, very easy. It's Christ. It's an easy one. The far country is heaven. Receiving the kingdom and returning, Christ's ascension after his resurrection into heaven in our our past, and then his return to earth in our future. What did Jesus say to his disciples in John 14.3? They they had questions too. Just because they were his followers doesn't mean they all got it like this. They were also human beings. He had to explain things to them as well. He says to his disciples, I go and prepare a place for you in heaven after his resurrection crucifixion, resurrection, and subsequent ascension. I go. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there's many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you, my followers. Obviously, he wasn't speaking about here. There's no uh, Jesus hotel anywhere, you know, and, and we all go to live there. He's speaking about in heaven. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself, the Lord's return for his believers at a later time. Okay, who are the ten servants? They represent believers, us. We're part of this 2,000-year interim delay where we were born, and for those of us that were born again, we were born of the Spirit, okay? And we are the servants. And the mina, ah, the mina, what's the mina? Well, everybody gets one mina. 
Everybody gets the same thing. And this is important. I'm going to differentiate the difference between the minas and the talents next Sunday. Different parable. A lot of people confuse them. Talents were different amounts. Mina, everybody got the same amount. And really, I, I don't know when I talked about the, um, the values in the parable of the unforgiving servant, there was such a disparity of value between the, one, the some talents that the one servant had, which added up to like $300, and the other one had like millions and millions, if not a billion dollars. And that showed the disparity of how we are petty with each other, but how God has forgiven us for our sins, which is in, an incredible load that we couldn't have paid for. But in this case, the mina is the same value, and really it's no sense in arguing about it. Everybody gets the same mina. Well, as believers... We all get the gospel. We understand. One of the first things we understand when we come up to receive the Lord is salvation. So every believer understands their salvation. They understand they're saved. And God made it simple for us to understand. By extension, you can look at God's word. From Genesis to Revelation is all about redeeming sinful human flesh. Okay, God's word is important. It's embedded in that. You know, when I take... Um, <laughs> I just got my camera phone. It's only been a year. And I learned how to like take pictures. And then there's this little button and you flip it. You could take a selfie. Now all of a sudden you're looking at yourself. I kind of think of this, you know, it's just how my mind works. There's two sides to this. You know, I've been given the gospel. I've been given God's word. But when I flip it around and I look in the mirror, what am I doing with my life? Oh, that's different. No, it's not different. It's the same thing, but from a different angle. It's almost the biblical version of, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But God's not looking us to make millions or to work really hard and bust ourselves for him. And that's not what he does. And I'm going to talk about that as I get into it. But the mina is something that every Christian's been given. What are you doing with your life? What have you been doing with the precious understanding of human salvation? Are we are we concerned for others, for them to be saved as well? That leads to the command. The nobleman says to his servants, do business until I come. That means that Christians, we have responsibility. Again, Sunday morning preachers, you don't have any responsibility. You just open up, Santa's going to come, God's Santa's going to come, and he's going to dump all his, you know, drop all this stuff down your chimney. That's not accurate Christianity. We have a responsibility what are we doing with the precious things, the precious understanding of God's word that he gave us? Jesus said, when, even when he was young and in the temple, I'm to be about my father's business. Are we about our father's business? Are we involved in monkey business? Are we involved in, too involved in other people's business? Right? There's a lot of that going around. Or are we involved in God's business? Now, there's three groups here. Three groups the faithful Christians who obey, the unfaithful Christians, again, they have faith and belief in God, but they're unfaithful in the, in the fact that they're not reliable, they're not obedient to what God says to them, who don't obey, and his subjects who hate him. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. Verse 14, it says, his citizens hated him. Now, Jesus says a lot of things that raises our eyebrows. If we've been taught a very surface picture of Jesus, you know, he's always warm and fuzzy, and he always has a smile and has nice things to say. You're not reading your Bible. And I think that's a real problem in the American church. You know, we're susceptible to false teaching when we're not studying the Word of God. 
The hate for Christianity in our culture, forget about overseas, it's even worse. The persecuted Christians, they're slaughtered just for believing in Christ. They're not even doing anything. They're second-class citizens in a lot of these countries. And, and the authorities root them out, or radical Islam roots them out to exterminate them. But in our country, we're seeing, we're seeing the hostility increase. You know, if you, look at, if you watch TV a lot, the desire is to always downplay the power of Christ, is to always take away his deity. Right? And they, it's just amazing. They find these people who are hacks when you really start to look at them. Uh, and their whole desire is to, is to water down the gospel to water down, oh, did he really rise from the dead? And they put all these ridiculous theories that you can shoot a lot of holes through them. You look at academia is hostile. The American Center for Law and Justice is, has uh, all these lawsuits in court. They chronicle even universities today. So if you write your paper, my son just went through this, this process and he got accepted to the college that we wanted. But in some universities, if they read your paper and they find out you're a Christian, they, they, they blackball you. They're not interested in your thought, right? There's a lot of cases like that that are going on. Um, politicians that are hostile to the gospel, even major corporations during Christmas time. I mean, gee, Christmas is commercialized as it is. It can't get any more commercialized. But, you know, the happy holidays and all this other kind of stuff, you can't mention Jesus, but other religions and other faiths are okay. Hey, we might offend somebody. And we can see this working its way into some churches. And I'm going to tell you this. When, when the globalists and the elitists and the media and academia are all on one side on a subject, automatically I think to myself, I bet if I look in the Word of God, it's the opposite. So be careful. Be careful what, who you join up with. Be careful what groups that you follow. Do a little research. It's very to do. Who's funding these groups? What are their mindsets? You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Marxists out there that are trying to work their poison into the church, into the universities, and they're doing a lot of this to try to water down Christ. Um, many Christians, and even, you know, that have, have tried to participate in certain events, we're told, you know, you can't wear a cross, or we don't want your type with us. Yeah, but I'm, I'm for the cause. Yeah, but you're, you can't. We're not interested in what you think. What does that tell you? It tells you that, that Christ has power. So if you can rope everything else into one category... Right? But Jesus stands alone and we don't want him. Who wouldn't want Jesus? You read the scripture, he was pure. But this is what's going on. Quite frankly, all right, all those people are doing that and it's popular. Oh, that's right. And Jesus spoke about the wide road that led to destruction. He said the narrow road to find everlasting life. He said there's few people that are on it. That's the road that I want to be on. I don't have to go with the crowd. You know, keep, keep that in mind. Now this is interesting because Jesus... I find myself just, you know, the culture and history, and I love it because you, you read a parable and sometimes you're like, you know, I'm not really understanding that point or this point. If you go back in time to the time that Jesus taught, there was an incident that happened a few years back. And if you study history, you'll, you'll know it. Well, Herod the Great died, and he had a lot of control over what we know now as, as the Israel territory and its, its, its borders. When Herod the Great died, he had sons, he had family members. Uh, one of his sons, Herod Archelaus, took, he, he actually went to a far country. He went to Rome, he petitioned Rome to get part of his father's territory, and that included Judea and Samaria. And he was a, a bloodthirsty man, he was an evil man, he, he murdered a lot of people. 
and a delegation actually went to Rome separately and said, please, don't let this guy rule over us. He's bad news. Well, the Romans gave him this ethnarchy or tetrarchy to rule, and eventually he made such a, a ter- did such a terrible job that they banished him. You might say, well, why would Jesus parallel that to himself? What Jesus did, and it was so masterful and only from the mind of God, what Jesus did was he would tell these stories. And as he told the story, it was only a few years ago that this whole thing happened with Herod Archelaus. You could look it up in your secular history books. That they would have been, oh, what happened? What happened to, to Archelaus? And as he draws them in, he does a bait and switch. He changes the symbols. So from this point on, there's no allusions to Herod Archelaus, but he's already got their attention, and now he's going to teach them a spiritual truth. What Jesus did was it's a, a, it's a technique that he used the familiar to explain the unfamiliar. The familiar of politics at the time, then he changed everything around and said, now let me teach you a spiritual truth now that I have your attention. I just find it fascinating. I love the parables. I could be up here by myself, you know what I'm saying? I know I've said that before, but this is even better. It gets even better. Herod Archelaus was removed, and the Jews, for all this time, Romans, Greeks before them, Persians before them, right? The Babylonians before them. Yes, the Jews were conquered so many times, but they allowed the Jews, as long as they paid tribute, to run day-to-day operations, even to institute their own form of justice, capital punishment. This was the first time in history Archelaus is removed. They put a guy named Capanius in there. Maybe these names don't sound familiar. A few people after Capanius was Pontius Pilate. Now do I have your attention? So what the Bible does is there's a, a, a prophecy all the way back. You don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Anybody not believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Go back to Genesis 49.10, thousands of years ago, and it will say, Shalom, the Messiah will come when these things happen. When the, this right of, of day-to-day operations, capital punishment is removed, their sceptership is removed from Judah, Messiah will be here. That's why nobody after that time period could claim to be the Messiah. There's plenty of time-sensitive prophecies. So for those of you that really are actively engaging your society, your students in college, the naysayers, your family, this is some really good information that you can't refute. So (laughs) pretty good stuff. So from this point on, Jesus now has their attention, and now he's going to explain to them what he means about this whole parable of the meanness. And if you have questions about that or I spoke too fast, I'd be more than happy to write it down for you after service. Or you can send me an email. Verse 15 continues. It says, And so it was that when he returned, the nobleman from the far country, having received the kingdom, he then commanded those, these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man gained by trading, doing business. So this is two out of eight. A day of reckoning for believers. Brothers and sisters, what are we doing with the life-changing, life-saving gospel that we've been entrusted with? Now, some, some, believe it or not, would prefer to, they don't want to hear this type of teaching. You know, it's because it's convicting. It's, it's about me. Wow, I came here to hear something to uplift me on a Sunday morning before I, I go out in this beautiful weather, and now I have to actually take a look at myself. So some will leave and go to a very highly liturgical church where the word's really not espoused. Others will stay home and watch Joel Osteen or any one of these feel-good preachers on a Sunday morning because they don't want that conviction. But God wants to get our attention. And we have to ask ourselves, 
do I really have a relationship with the Lord if some of these things here irritate me? If, and I'm going to tell you something, as a, as a new believer, or as an immature believer, even today, I read some things in Scripture and go, oh, that's about me. I don't tell you. <laughs> that's between me and the Lord. But I'm like, that's about me. But if I, if I really have a relationship with the Lord, am I open to his correction? Right? If we're not, and we, we, we leave, we escape that, then you have to ask yourself, am I really a follower of Christ? Verse 16, continuing on, Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little. You have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said, You also be over five cities. Three out of eight is the proportionality Right, The proportionality, the reward to faithfulness. Faithful in the little, faithful in the much. Now we are, in our culture, again, we're moving, as I talked about those groups, there's a big push in this country to move us towards socialism. And this is anathema to that type of mindset. But I'm going to go with what the Lord says. Listen, Jesus is not a capitalist or a socialist. Okay, It's not where I'm going. But what I'm saying is that if someone can't handle the responsibility, why give it to them? And I've got to be honest with you, I don't want God to give me, I don't care if they're blessings, don't give me something that I can't handle, that I'm not faithful enough, dependable enough, I'm not tried enough to handle. So you, you look at the scripture and it's amazing because it applies to everyday life. It applies to everyday life. You know, when you study the, the lottery, most people that play the lottery are either poor or middle class, maybe on the lower echelon. It's just the demographics. And if you do a study of those who have won the lottery, oftentimes you find it ruined their lives. They don't know what to do with that money. Millions of dollars. All of a sudden, they have friends that came out of the woodwork. You know, all these BFFs come, come around. You know, wow, you won that money? And what you find is that they end up losing all the money that they got, and then they lose what they had before they had that money. The little in savings, marriage, relationship, any other type of responsibility. So... You know, God will, will, will reward us according to our faithfulness, according to how we, you know, faithful in the little, faithful in the medium, faithful in the more, and he will continue to re- reward us in those things. I find, I just speak about my own life. A few years into being a Christian, I, I watched what pastors did, and I thought, I want to be a pastor. And I would tell my pastor, I want to be a pastor. And I got ignored. But that was good, because I just was a brand new Christian. And it kind of worked out in my system. And then almost a decade later, there was an opportunity, and I was asked, and I'm like, no, I don't want to be a pastor. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> You're like, what are you doing up there? <laughs> God, my wife, it was some circumstances that kind of got in the middle of the whole thing, but I'm like, so I'm like having this, you, you have these conversations with God, but wait a minute, when I really wanted it, you didn't give it to me. Right. Okay. I really don't want it now, and you want me to have it? Right. Is this reverse psychology? You know what I'm saying? But it, it was this, I realized the, the burden in, in, in t- terms of taking care of people spiritually. I realized my eyes were open to ministry, and I'm like, no, I don't want that. And God's like, now you're ready. Yeah, but I said I didn't want it. You don't understand. It's yours. So that's the way he works sometimes. Um, I think you got the principle by now. Verse 20, continuing on. It says, And another came saying, Master, here is your mina which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you, 
because you are an austere man, you collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Four, the wasted mina. So this person, who was one of his servants, and you can make the, you know, as you do the interpretation, one of God's followers, one of the believers, he sounds an awful lot like the world. But you know, the world is an infecting culture. And find me any church, the Corinthian church, the church in Jamesburg, the church wherever, the culture will try to seep its way into that church. The church in Indonesia, the church in wherever, in France. And unfortunately, worldliness works its way into the church. And people make excuses. Believers. Blame shifting, it's God's fault. Projection, to cloak their selfishness, lazy, disobedience, or self-indulgence. And I'm going to tell you something, that's more harmful to the cause of Christ because those believers are on the inside. It's okay, the atheists say this, the God-haters say that. Roll with the punches. We do our homework, we study the Bible, we engage them in a loving way, try to change their minds. But when it's on the inside, it makes it look to others on the outside that this is normal and it's not. Okay? The servant knew what was expected and he didn't do it. We know what's expected. We read the word. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit teaches us. We know what to do. And if we attend a church that's light on God's word, what's going to happen is we will always stay in a state of perpetual infancy spiritually. Verse 21. Look at what he says, the servant. I feared you. You're an austere man. I looked in the Greek. It means you're a rough man. You're a severe man. You're collecting what you didn't deposit, which is a lie, and reap where you have not sown, which is insulting. Makes God sound like a harsh, unfair, and corrupt corporate CEO. And some believers have a very distorted vision of their God, and they never get victory because they are believers. So in the world, they're not going to find satisfaction. And in the faith, if they don't, read the word and try to develop a closer they almost kind of ride two horses with one behind and I'm not going to try to do that but if you've ever tried to do that you probably find it very painful verses 22 through 23 the nobleman says out of your own mouth I will judge you you know he even says listen if I if I give you what you say you're still at fault you're still at fault these excuses won't hold up over time you know, just like any other relationship, God has expectations. And I, I'm of the belief, okay, you might find a teacher that says something else. I'm of the belief that this guy was a believer. I'm of the belief that if it represents some Christians, they will get to heaven, maybe barely, because they truly have trusted in his death on the cross for their salvation. But again, they're living a, an unfulfilling life. Their lifestyle is unfulfilling. And instead of looking in the mirror, they go right to blaming God. Right? I don't believe that that person's not saved. Again, you might find a teacher that might believe that. See, up here, when hell is expressed, we talk about it. But there are some churches where everything you do, you're going to hell. You know what I'm saying? You do this, you say that, you're going to hell. You do, you're going. That's not how God rolls. You trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
He's freed you from that. He saved you from the lake of fire. You're good. But does it mean that we can still be immature or disobedient in our walk with the Lord? Yes, we can. Um, we shouldn't want to be that way. And according to this, he's not thrown out. He's still saved, but he's not giving any authority. There's no rewards in his life. And I don't want to live that life, you know? Verse 24, we continue on. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. In other words, he's already got ten. You're going to give him one more and make that makes eleven. That's not fair. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get to that. Five out of eight is the shame of a wasted Christian life. You know? Now, here's the caveat. If you just came forward to receive the Lord recently or you maybe came to the Lord later in life, don't sweat it. You know, the Lord is gentle. He'll take his time with you. Enjoy the honeymoon. And, and here's the thing. <laughs> when, it, when it truly comes to taking what God is, I'll use myself as an example, entrusted to me, it isn't hard work. You know, God often puts the people in my path. You know, I could be out in public and all of a sudden there's a, there's a dead space area where I don't really have to be to the next place right away and all of a sudden this person comes up to me, I'm talking to them, maybe in the waiting room, in the doctor's office, whatever. The line at the checkout store. It doesn't mean I have to express the whole gospel to them, but just to share with them, just to show them the love of Christ, just to reflect that. I can be honest with you, it's not hard. And faithful in the little. Hey, but I'm a new believer. I don't know much. Great. He'll give you little steps. Maybe your example. Maybe your joy in the Lord. Maybe that you don't even have to say a thing. But there's, a, there's that, you know, you're faithful in the little. That's an awesome thing. So I'm going to say that it's, this isn't something that God's going to make us break our back over spiritually. He's a gentle God. And again, I find with me it comes naturally. When I try to force it and I'm in my own strength, then I have difficulty because I'm doing it. But when God's doing it and he's setting up everything, it's, 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 it's amazing. It's almost flawless, but it's because it's him. So here's another thing. The, the other servants say, well, why would you take the one mina and give it to the guy who has ten? And that's kind of funny because that's the world's wisdom. Again, going back to the socialism example. Guy's already got ten minas. Why would you give him another one? How we think in our humanistic understanding and how God thinks are very different. God can see through the heart. We might see somebody genuinely trying, but he might see through it as they're putting on a facade. There's really a laziness. There's a self-centeredness in that heart. God sees it. We don't. I was going to do a, a Bernie Sanders impression. Why would you give him a Mina? He's already got 10. All right, there you go. Do I have your attention? <laughs> and here's another thing. We please, I know I do, I try to please the fellowship, I try to please my wife, I try to please my friends. Why wouldn't we want to please our Lord? And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take logic and just put it into the mix. See, if we had a relationship with somebody on this earth and it was all one-sided, you, your BFF wouldn't be a BFF anymore your marriage would be in turmoil because it's one-sided. So why would we take the same thing and apply it to our relationship with the Lord? These are simple questions, right? Verse 26, For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Six out of eight. 
the use it or lose it principle. Use it or lose it. God has given us all something precious. Are we using it or are we going to lose it? Pastor Vinny's been going through the book of Esther, which is an awesome book. Uh, he's been doing it on Wednesday nights. You can get it free off the internet. But in Esther 4, Mordecai, who's like a father figure to Esther, and she's in this, she's the, the queen in the king's court, but is very patriarchal back then. The queen couldn't even approach the king unless he gave her permission. And if she, it's just old, it's the old monarchies. And if she did approach him without being asked, she could be killed, she could be executed. So Mordecai, this father figure, basically says she, she's got reservations about you know, sticking her neck out about trying to save her people. And Mordecai basically says to her, you don't have to do it, but somebody else will. God will raise up someone else. And how do you know that you're not here for such a time as this? That's the, where the expression comes from. Well, she eventually does do it, but you know, her fear almost caused her to lose that privilege that God was giving her. And that's what I call that privilege you know, is God asking us to do something unreasonable? It isn't a chore, it's a privilege. Wow, God, you want me to... Wow. And Mordecai even says to her, you, you don't even know that if you try to preserve yourself, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, because of fear, you don't know that you might lose your life with your people. So even your, your overcautiousness because of your fear could backfire on you. But it turns out really well in the end. And I'm going to say this, folks. God's not looking us... For, He's not looking for us. He's, he doesn't look for us to hand in a resume. Well, I'm overqualified. I ran a business. I did that. I'm very popular. You know, I'm very politically connected in the community. So therefore, are you ready to use me, Lord? He usually uses us when we have the opposite. You know what, Lord? I, I don't know that I'm qualified. I don't know that I have it in me. I don't know that I could do it. That's what I want. You know what I'm saying? So what is God asking us to do? You, know, you want to be a part of something bigger than you? Honestly, if, if, it's, if the Lord is with you, you can't mess it up. And you don't have to be successful in the world to do it. Verse 27. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Seven out of eight, the judgment on the rebellious. Those that refuse to be governed by God. The Lord Jesus Christ will return. He will have a second coming. He will stop the insanity on this planet. Dictators starving their own people, wars, um, human trafficking, whew, that's all going to be gone. And just keep praying that that happens soon. But when he does, the rebellious, again, like I, told, I said, the name of Jesus in certain political service circles, in certain academia circles, in certain media circles. You say the name of Jesus, look at Tim Tebow, how much they made fun of him for years. And the guy just keeps pushing on. I, got, I haven't given him a lot of credit. It's got to be an enormous amount of pressure, but they make fun of him. Oh, you want to be a virgin until you're married? They just like ridicule him mercilessly. The name of Jesus and what Jesus stands for is hated in this world. And the Bible tells us that. In John 15.25, which references Psalm 69.4, Jesus says, they hated me. And this is all the way in the Old Testament before he even appeared. They hated me without a cause. John 3.19-20 basically tells us that the light came into the world and men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. Everyone practicing evil hates the light. Now I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to share this with you. I never want to be up here and, and act or portray myself as better than anybody here. 
Before I was a Christian, I don't even know why God saved me. That's why I'm up here, because I'll do anything for him at this point, because now I see the light. But I was the guy that, you know, I had my lifestyle, and I don't want anybody messing with it. And when I would hear things from Christians or hear, see bumper stickers, I would get, I, I remember, I would get physically agitated, angry at God. And I didn't even know why I, I was that. I don't even know why I didn't even like Christians. It just was a, it was a spiritual thing. I was in darkness. I hated him without a cause, and here I am. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> First, or eight out of eight, the takeaway. The Lord, I believe, gives us these teachings so that when we face him, we're not ashamed. I believe that this is corrective. You know, we read the Bible, we study the Bible. It's good now, today, this morning, to think, there's some things I really need to work on. And you know what? We do it, we fix it, we get right, we work with the Lord. When we see him, he says, you made some minas, awesome. What a pleasure. Do you, yeah, but remember the time... We don't talk about that. You fixed the problem. You repented. God is a loving God. So I love doing this because even somebody in Idaho could be listening to this on the website and go, oh, I really need to change. I don't even know who that person is, but in heaven I might find out, hey, thanks, that, that sermon was good. I really was a very worldly and selfish Christian. And now I'm not that servant anymore. That's the beautiful thing of, of the scripture. What did he do too? He had to, again, polyvalent, multivalent, these words, at the time, he had to make sure his followers understood that the conquering Messiah doesn't come first, the suffering Messiah does. So he helped us to grasp better the difference between the first coming and the second coming. It also taught us how to live in the interim between the first and the second comings. You know, God wants us to spread the gospel, you know, to spread his word, to further the kingdom of heaven. And I've got to tell you, just on a personal note, this is why I have a problem with celebrity Christianity. Because there's this thing in the church that's taken over, and it's in Calvary's too, where we get to sit back like we're watching a movie or a play, and the actors are up on stage, the great band people, the great preachers. And we sit back because we think, well, I'm not that. I don't have to do anything. God has, he's using them. No, 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 no. To turn the mirror around. He wants to use all of us. And what celebrity Christianity does, it is, absolves the average Christian of their personal responsibility. I don't like it. When the Lord returns, which of the three groups will we be in? Hopefully not the rebellious citizen. Well, that was me over 25 years ago, but that changed. And if you're the rebellious citizen, that can change too. Do it before he comes back. Nor the unfaithful servants, right? Some might say, well, that's me. Well, change. You're still saved, but don't you want to please your Lord? Do we bury our, our mina in the ground and hide the light of Jesus, the light of the gospel that he gave us? Luke 6.46 says, I love Jesus' frankness. He says to his followers, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? That's amazing. I love that. You know, I love that Jesus wasn't a politician. He didn't say something so that he could get, you know, the Facebook polls. How many likes did Jesus get on his sermon today? A million likes. Or three million people didn't like it. Who cares? He doesn't care. The cool thing is, he says, why do you call me Lord? People, oh, I wear the cross, I go to a church, I do this every Sunday, you know, I, I give my offering. But Jesus says, but why do you not do the things which I say? Mercy, love, sacrifice, obedience, right? Diligence in spiritual things. 
Many will make it to heaven, but will lose a blessing. They will experience loss. They will experience loss. Maybe some too, too many chasing the American dream. And that's great. We have all those freedoms, but we can make a, an idol out of it that they forgot about the Lord. We should strive to be in the group with at least the two faithful servants that he spoke of. Now, I, listen, a lot of people have conjecture. So there was ten. One was unfaithful. Two were unfaithful. What happened to the other seven? Honestly, who cares? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Who cares? Jesus is trying to express the spiritual truth to us. And I think the number ten was expressive of a large number of people, and that would express the believers. The, the two multiplied their minas. It came naturally as a relationship with the Lord and an overflow of the Holy Spirit. Now, authority over the cities, people ask, well, what does that mean? Well, it could be the millennium. It could be that, I, I said, I keep telling you, I keep vying for the Mediterranean. I love the food, the culture, the water. Never been there, but I'm asking the Lord. It's funny, I was listening to Chuck Smith, and he's like, I want to be the guy over Hawaii. <laughs> so everybody's got, listen, just put me anywhere, wherever you think I can handle, Lord. But I like balmy weather. Anyway, the point is that could it be uh, literally over the cities in the millennium or in the eternal kingdom, or could it just be a reward? You know, I'm not going to argue over that. People believe different things. But the bottom line is this, folks. We all have the same opportunity. And according to the parables, we have work to do. So let's do it. In Revelation 22:12, Jesus tells us, he says, I am coming soon and my reward is with me. Take that to heart. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.